Hey friends, welcome to the Mount Vigil podcast. This is Blaine. And I am cutting in for the first time to give you an introduction to the show that you are about to hear. And the reason is, in this episode, you get to see the riches of Anthony's theological mind and uh, how much he has actually steeped in the Gospel of Matthew in particular. We get quite granular in this show, teaching through Matthew 24 and 25. But because we do that, I wanted to give you the big outline. And our thesis is that in Matthew 24, Jesus responds to two questions. The first question relates to the cosmically significant siege of Jerusalem, not to the return of Jesus per se. The second question relates directly to the bodily return of Jesus. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus gives three parables that relate to the bodily return of Jesus. The thing to know is we're going to spend the first hour almost of this conversation talking about the siege of Jerusalem, Jesus's teachings on the siege of Jerusalem, which is actually a thing that really matters in the story of God interpreting the situation of the church in the world. So, it's a wonderful way to read many of the teachings in Matthew 24 that are often, we think, inaccurately applied to the return of Christ. Nonetheless, in the end of Matthew 24, as you will see, we think there are strong structural cues that indicate a shift to speaking directly to the bodily return of Jesus. So, that's what this conversation is about. We hope you enjoy it, uh, that it blesses you to see us take a little bit of a deeper dive in following Jesus, seeing his way, and desiring the return of Christ. Hello and welcome to the Mount Vigil Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm Anthony. And one of us, Anthony's, stood underneath a roaring waterfall this morning. Praising God. <laughs> Do you want to say anything more about that, Anthony? Uh, only that I recommend it. A buddy and I met on a mountain road, hiked down to a waterfall in a creek of melted snow, and got into the waterfall. It's did three rounds, howling like barbarians, scaring at the occasional hiker that passed by. Cold exposure. Breakfast of champions. <laughs> If we were the kind of organization that made stickers, <laughs> we would make that one. Ant-Man, where are we going? We talked for about 40 minutes on different rabbit trails that we may or may not take, um, but I think we've hammered out what it is that we are going to say. Where are we in the Story of God series, and what are we going to talk about today? We are nearing the end of the Story of God series. Our last episode was on the eschaton, the age to come, the return of Christ. And the way that we thought that we would proceed is to do a little Bible study. And this episode, we want to talk about the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. And I believe next time, if our plans don't change, we're going to talk about the whole book of Revelation, and we'll see where we go from there. Yeah. 
This is the story of God series, which is an effort to capture the big story of reality testified to in the scriptures. And in so doing, to establish the framework through which the follower of Jesus interprets the world. Uh, And we talked last time about the return of Christ, the appearing, where the final marriage of heaven and earth that was prophesied and begun in the Garden of Eden takes place. But unfortunately, as I'm sure our listeners well know, that if Jesus coming back and the marriage of heaven and earth was the only thing that had been said, maybe just an aside, I'm coming back, that would be fairly straightforward. But there are these two, in particular, big texts. And we're not talking about the constant expectation of the bodily return of Jesus in the letters. We're talking about these gigantic chunks that uh, sort of are the repositories that people go to looking for orientation to the rest of time and usually come back with a crazy idea. (laughs) And so... (laughs) Uh, I call them this one in the capital B, capital T, big texts. These are the big texts that unpack the theological situation, the emotional reality of the return of Jesus, and there are some challenges in both of them. It's amazing that we're going to do both of these, actually, in just one episode each. And so, you <laughs> have a lot to say. I'm glad in particular. I'm your John Collins today, Tim. <laughs> Did you just call me Tim? Yeah, you're... Oh, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. About... (laughs) I'm just kidding, Tim. I know you're listening. (laughs) Uh, And he's not, everyone. (laughs) Um, But you have a lot of time spent in the Olivet Discourse in particular. And so I think my first question for you is, uh, Matthew 24, 25... Like, give us some context. Where are we in the book of Matthew? What's happening when Jesus finally begins to teach on the end of history? I think that is the right question to ask, first of all. What is the context? Where are we? What's happening? I think one of the main sources of error in approaching, especially this text, Matthew 24 and 25, is looking at it in isolation, not asking questions about how this can make any sense and to whom is he speaking, and et cetera. Uh, and we just start grabbing on to symbols, things, these kind of archetypal symbols that we've grown up hearing about in pop culture, from our parents, in church, whatever. Uh, and we fill them as empty symbols with whatever meaning we choose. For example. For example. Don't the seven woes of the Pharisees correspond? That must be something related to seven years of tribulation or something. There, there's nothing else in Matthew that could be talking about, right? Exactly. Uh, the seven woes, by the way, should be the eight woes. And that's something that we can briefly touch upon because it, uh, it relates as it leads up to this conversation. But you pointed out in a teaching that uh, those are a point of balance to something else that happens that's kind of important that's right. in Matthew's gospel account. That's right. So... The the reason that people think that there are seven woes, okay, uh, let's we'll come back to that. I, I want to drop the woes in 
a little narrative context. Okay. Okay. Um, I for sure want to mention how the woes parallel other things. Uh, why is the, all of the discourse called a discourse? Matthew's gospel is structured around five great discourses, as academics have called them, as they're, they're popularly known. Um, each one has a name, each one has a different theme, and uh, it's been observed that perhaps the five great discourses provide some sort of parallel or at least an allusion to the idea of the Torah, the Pentateuch. The five books of Moses. Exactly, the first five books of the Bible. Now, if you're looking for a parallel in the sense of Genesis relates to this discourse and so on, I don't think you'll find it, no one else has, but the idea of these five great anchoring texts at least um, alludes to the the Torah, and um, they certainly summarize the Torah of Jesus um, as he recapitulates all of the scriptures in his ministry. So the Olivet Discourse, so-called because it's given at the Mount of Olives, is the final great discourse in Matthew's Gospel, and it uh, really is the concluding word of Jesus. This, is, uh, this concluding discourse, the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, is really Jesus' closing words to his ministry. The way that Matthew um, relates it, this concludes what, the ministry of Jesus. Everything else is living out his passion. And like finishing his work with all of the symbolic embodiment of of the prophetic fulfillment of the rest of his life through his resurrection, but in terms of his teaching ministry of the words he has to say, by and large, this discourse concludes it. It wraps things up. So one of the reasons uh, that it's so significant that the eight uh, woes parallel what, what what they parallel is the eight beatitudes. Um, some people think there are nine Beatitudes, there are only eight, and... You're going to weigh it on this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. I mean, it's just, it's so clear once you see it, you can't unsee it. But there are eight Beatitudes, and there are eight woes. And actually, when Wait, you, why are there eight Beatitudes? Uh, the ninth Beatitude is basically the teaching out of the eighth Beatitude. So it sounds like it's uh, a, a redundant Beatitude. So eighth is, be- is blessed are those who are persecuted. And then Jesus goes on to say, again, blessed are those who are persecuted. And he teaches about what that looks like. But the actual structure of the teaching is there are eight Beatitudes. And then Jesus teaches those Beatitudes out in reverse order. So he immediately begins teaching on the eighth Beatitude on persecution. And that's why it seems like there's a redundant ninth one, but there isn't. And the parallel between those eight Beatitudes and the eight woes, if you line them up to, against each other, is shocking. It's so beautiful. It's, it's also kind of terrifying because it comes in a very negative context. And what Jesus is saying to the religious authorities of Jerusalem is rather than being blessed in all these ways that, that the people who follow in the way of Christ are blessed— or are happy, as is the correct translation of the word for blessed are the poor and so on. Uh, rather than that, the religious authorities who are in rebellion against God's purposes have eight woes, eight unhappinesses. <laughs> um, the word is like uai, and it's basically like whales. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's actually, we could totally derail into word debates because I like that kind of thing. But... Some people think that the, that Greek word is just an onomatopoeia. Exactly. It's, it's, not, it's not a word. It's a sound. Yeah. So it's not like, whoa, and we have to learn, the, well, what does whoa mean? It's just, just think a big sigh. He goes, oh, oh, guys. That's a much more emotionally charged teaching, especially when contrasted. Which also, makarios, I mean, we could... 
I think happy is excellent. I also like uh, blissful. L- lucky, blissful, and the word congratulations. <laughs> um, yeah, it's this loaded concept of divine happiness, divine bliss, uh, the happiness of the gods. The word was actually applied to the gods in Greek culture. Yeah, but it, the reason it works contrasted with the woe and why I like congratulations is because there's a spontaneous... Uh, like effusion of emotion in that. Wow! Um, That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Which shows you the upside-down nature of the whole way of the kingdom and of life with Christ. Yeah, highlighting the big point again here. Yeah. Because your first thing, I gotta say, I just love, is both of these teachings on the end times, and which, using that term self-consciously, are encoded in texts that have a certain nature. And so Revelation is its own thing, but like you go, Matthew, here is this sweeping account on the story of God reaching its climax that is structured in five big acts. And I mean, the, the structure of all the gospel accounts is well worth knowing. Mm. It's, uh, it's just amazing. Two recommendations Watch a Bible Project video, read Tom Wright's That Book for Everyone from that series. Third recommendation, Story of God commentary series, um, which all just agree that these books have this big literary design. And so you're building all the way through the movements of the inauguration of the kingdom of God, which is, we could say, one of the big messages of Matthew. It's the big message. (laughs) What is this new reality that has become available in Jesus? And then right before that kingdom is going to come in power, you get the capstone teaching of Jesus. Continue. Beautiful. So, narratively leading up to this final discourse, and by the way, the eight woes are in the chapter prior to the discourse. Some people include the woes as part of the discourse, but the structure, the the narrative cues that Matthew gives us of when one begins and how it ends are such that clearly... The all of the discourse is Matthew 24 and 25, and the woes are um, the conclusion of his engagement with the religious authorities of Jerusalem after having entered the city. So the anointed one arrives in Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He curses the fig tree. He debates the religious authorities in Jerusalem. He establishes his authority as the true interpreter of scriptures and as the son of God. Um, and there's some really interesting stuff happening with the structure of chapters 21 through 23, like he teaches it in these three groups of three. There are uh, three symbolic acts or parables that he acts out. So he enters the city via the Mount of Olives on a donkey. That's an act. Two, he cleanses the temple. Three, he curses the fig tree. Then he gives three parables, the two sons, the vineyard tenants, and the wedding feast. And then he responds to three different challenges in the form of questions posed by the religious authorities about paying taxes, the resurrection, and the greatest commandment. And then he concludes that debate, that rabbinic debate, with Matthew 23, and he pronounces the eight woes against the scribes and Pharisees. He ends that with lamenting over Jerusalem, and that's what, that's what sets up the stage for Matthew 24. What were you going to say? I was just going to ask you if you had to give a summary thematic statement of what happens in what you just described. What's happening in the story is Jesus is blank, and then he's going to start teaching. Uh, I feel like you might be looking for the king coming into his kingdom or um, what? I'm actually not fishing for an answer uh, okay, okay. at all right now. <laughs> well, the, the Messiah is coming in to the holy city and he, oh, 
I mean, it's hard to answer this question because immediately, like, all of Zechariah and Ezekiel and the whole Old Testament, like, all these threads of the entire biblical story are, are like, getting, coming to this, this center point, getting knotted together. And the allusions, the quotes, the images are coming at us hard and fast. But the Messiah is coming in to Jerusalem. I think that's a brilliant summary statement of that thing. Yeah. Yes. And that the way... Uh, it's just so big and so beautiful uh, that I have to not say anything else and just go, the Messiah comes into Jerusalem, it takes this form, and then here we are. One little side note that I can't help but drop for those who are interested in why we say there are eight woes, when often it's, you see in the, in the, the, the subtitle that the interpreters provide is seven woes, is that um, verse 14 of chapter 23 in the woes chapter is often left out for, for textual reasons. So there are earlier texts that don't have it, later ones that do. Some Bibles keep it. I insist, Your Bible probably has that as a footnote. I mean, yeah, exactly. And there are lots of instances, instances of these because the Bible is interesting. Like the end of the, like the you know, last chapter of Mark. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's in way more than people realize. So if you leave that verse in, it, uh, it evens out the parallel and it actually, uh, like narratively, what it does to the structure of the story is so essential. I highly recommend you just, if your Bible doesn't have that, just pencil it into the margins so you can read it from now on. Uh, 23, 14, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, Matthew 24 begins. And I just want to say that if we take the time to listen to Jesus and to like, and to sort of take a deep breath and and approach this chapter with like a beginner's mind, we, we can learn something. If we come to it with all of our assumptions and expectations and insistence upon what this means and upon what these images mean to us, we can literally come away with the exact opposite understanding that Jesus is trying to give, give his disciples. The exact opposite of what he's saying, we often come away with. I definitely have, did for much of my life. So in verses one and two, I'm not sure how we're going to do this because I don't think we'll end up reading the entire chapter. I highly encourage you, listener, to read 24 and 25. Even doing that before listening to this episode could actually be helpful, but you know, we don't want to make too many demands on your time. Just do it. So chapter 24, verses one and two, Jesus left the temple. So he'd just been engaging with the... I'm saying religious authorities because throughout this time... Uh, Matthew variously describes them as the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, I'm, I think I'm, the elders. That might cover all the ones he's talking about in different combinations. So basically, all the religious authorities are variously represented. Yeah. My way of talking about that would be uh, the totality of the theocratic structure of Israel. Mm. And so, if you were to do something related today— The priests as well, yeah. It would be— and, you know, in our civic cult, it would say he engages with the lawyers and the police officers and the congressmen and the president. Oh, well, man. Let's just call them what they are, the archons. <laughs> <laughs> the, they're, well, whew. Um, <laughs> okay, and, yeah, go on. So they're all, anyway, the religious authorities, and they're all, they're all different, but you get, you know, they, they get blended together. So, at risk of being annoying, I'm going to say who they are, uh, just because it's the totality of the legal structure. So, you have like a scribe, which is a job. That is a professional legal interpreter. You have a Pharisee, which a scribe can be a Pharisee, but a Pharisee is a philosophy. Like, 
kind of, sort of, stretching my metaphors here, a Republican or a Democrat. It's right? also a sect, one of the, I think, three dominant sects. Four. Four. Um, and I say philosophy because uh, the first century preferred word for a sect is a philosophy. Mm. And they're Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots. Zealots, that's the one I was not including. But they usually just get called the fourth philosophy, not mentioned by name. And then, so you have that, scribes, prose, Pharisees, a sect, Sadducees, this crazy other elite thing who their big deal is that these are cream of the crop, extreme upper crust, wealthy landowners who had taken over the management of the temple itself in a brilliant move. Sadducees is a mispronunciation. Is a mince. I can't say this word. <laughs> is a mince pronunciation. <laughs> the irony is a uh, an incorrect way of pronouncing Zedekite, which and then the elders is a regional social leader. You know, it's kind of like that. You have a family political structure, but these are kind of like the neighborhood council <laughs> guys mm. or something like that, and. To take them all on is just so, man, I'm trying to think of a better word than just B.A., but it is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Something that this is triggering for me, you paralleled them to United States government officials. It might be equally or more relevant to say you can imagine in our situation Jesus approaching the bishops and the pastors and the deacons and so on. Yeah, but only if he did that, only if he did that in like Western Europe in 1200 or something, just because it is, it is a political reality in a way that unless you're an active member of one of those churches, like, what do you care if Jesus throws down with the cardinals in Rome? It's not going to change how you live your life. In this situation, it has direct bearing on where you can go and what you can do. I accept that distinction. I'm also intentionally pushing on that in regards to our whatever church leadership structures and whatever church stream that we're in anywhere in the world. Those are political roles as well. Should be, though they have different levels of engagement with the state. Um, And uh, in terms of the, the responsibility of those who have the role of stewardship of the things of the kingdom, uh, of the household goods to those in the household, we should we should put ourselves in, in that position, um, or at least we should be challenged by the idea. Thoughts? I I think we're on the same page yeah. here. Uh, you're highly foregrounding I'm just the administration to, I, of I'm the household of God. I'm just trying to piss some people off. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, I just really want to push the reality that the kingdom of God is a political reality right now. Yeah. In a way that is not front of mind. I think for. For this most, conversation. Most people. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's good. So Jesus ends that debate. He wins uh, unequivocally. And then 24, Matthew tells us he left the temple. And walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings, uh, the disciples... So the dis- Okay, this is really... This is kind of touching it in a way. Jesus and his disciples are country bumpkins in the eyes of the people in Jerusalem. They're from the north, they're from the country, they have a funny accent, they're, and they're now in a place that's more cosmopolitan, and all this crazy stuff just happened, all this like prophetic fulfillment and uh, throwing down 
at the temple. And on their way out, the disciples, the, the thing in their minds is like, man, these buildings are crazy because they come from a place maybe with like huts or whatever. Um, so well, uh, for sure huts, because yeah. I'm just going to, you know, we're just adding context Do today. <laughs> uh, they, the region, the bumpkin Northern region that they're from is extremely relevant in terms of the total geography of the Bible in terms of the first century when they are, it was a Jewish resettlement area. And so, you know, you, you won't find Galilee <laughs> talked about in the old Testament. And one of the reasons is, is because they're moving up there in order to kind of reestablish uh, Pharisaical Judaism. So it would have been, I don't know what our modern equivalent is, but like uh, tents, huts, these are brand new towns, and these are kind of basically like religious pioneers uh, who live way off in the hinterlands of the province who are coming down, and now they're in a city, and they're like, Wow, Jesus, I mean, get a load of the size of these. How would someone even move something like this? That's actually how I feel when I go to a city too, by the way. Especially like an ancient city that has stone buildings. Where I'm like, wow. Oh man, this is reminding me of stories my mom would tell of my grandfather, who was an extreme hick, uh, when he went to Dallas with her. And just these like these many stories of how embarrassed she was because he came from a very small town in Texas and uh, was very poorly educated. He shows up in Dallas and he thinks that he's still in a small town. And so he's talking to people on the bus or whatever public transport they're on and he hears their last name and asks them if they know so-and-so. Uh, and he's just like everything about the city is is very interesting to him in a very childlike way. So the disciples ask Jesus uh, – like, man, these buildings are, you know, they call Jesus' t- attention to the grandeur of the buildings. Jesus says, do you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And what he must be thinking of, Anthony, <laughs> is just symbolically the building blocks of <laughs> Jewish philosophy. Okay, my scholastic friend, I appreciate that. So, yeah, he's, he's saying straightforwardly, this place that we're in, this city, this temple will be raised to the ground. It's quite an intense response to their um, their musing on the, the structures, and so which I mean, oh, sorry, I just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, it, Matthew goes on. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This question, understanding its structure and understanding the structure of Jesus' response is the crux point for understanding Matthew 24 and then 25 subsequently. So I propose to you that we break this question into two parts and then that we break Jesus' answer into two parts. And I think that it will become clear to you. Once you see it, I believe you can't unsee it. It is just so, Socrates. (laughs) So the disciples ask him two things. One, Jesus just said, this city is about to be burned to the ground. Um, This temple is about to be destroyed. And the disciples say, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So my my basic proposal here is that verses 4 through 35 are Jesus' answer to the first part of the question. When will Jerusalem be destroyed? What will that look like? And then Verses 36 through the rest of the chapter are about 
Jesus' return and of the end of the age, the one that we are talking about in this series of conversations, the age that is to come. Um, well, no, the end of the age that we are in. Like you, listener, you, Blaine, me, the age that we're in, I believe Jesus is talking about that age and when it will end in verses 36 through 51. So, in other words, everything in verses 4 through 35, Jesus is talking about the end of the previous age, the one that Jesus ended when he came and we'll just summarize all of it by saying was crucified and resurrected. So, I don't want to belabor this point, but I also don't want to miss it. Increasingly, I talk about uh, the, the two ages, the, the one that ended with the, the earthly ministry of Jesus and the one that we're in, which we call the end times. Uh, picture them as two circles. Oh, you gave, this, you gave this last time. Did I? Yeah. Okay, good. So the two circles with the overlap, we're in the now, now and not yet. The age, that, the age that is to come for us has already begun arriving, but it's also not fully here. And the age, the previous age is still passing away. Right. Okay. Sorry. Going to totally drill down on this point. So I might include in the notes for this episode like a drawing because the, the two sort of extreme left and right points of, of each circle and their overlap and so on, giving all those like a name uh, really helps get the picture in one's head. So look, look to the notes for that. I'll include it. Go on. Okay. Yeah. This is just so important. Also, from now on, I vote that you include a drawing <laughs> that yeah. relates directly to the teaching. I'm trying to draw it with words. And it's all hard. right. The big cue, one big cue not to miss. Um, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3. All right, he's not tired. This is a major rabbi judo move that is, a, you know, an all red letters signal, teacher, teacher, lecture, and also like the master of a house. And so the way Jesus literally positions himself when he goes into a house and reclines at the table before anyone else, he's taking the seat of the master of the house, which is just like so amazing, uh, in particular in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Uh, here, he sits, oh my gosh, you are seeing the master teacher again. And so we should expect him to basically give a structured lecture because he's a rabbi. Then they say, what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? We talked about this last time, but I'm going to say it again. So, Second Temple Jewish eschatology, even how I said it last time, two ages. This present age, which is a quality of life apart from the presence of the reign of God and the age to come, which is, and what they don't know uh, is that this present age and the age to come are actually going to overlap, where the age to come is going to infiltrate everywhere but not yet. So, as first century Jews, it is highly, highly likely that when they're asking about the end of this age, it is this present age as it was uh, conceived of in Second Temple Jewish philosophy, life apart from the reign of God. It's mm. good. Good and essential. If you want a little Old Testament, like where is this Mount of Olives stuff coming from, look at uh, Zechariah 14, I believe. And many other places, but that's a good anchoring text. So Jesus begins, so let's, you know, sticking with this, this proposed structure, let's just skim through Jesus' answer to what will it look like when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. 
And he says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. And historically, we know that there were many false messiahs in the days leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Yeah, I mean, either side of Jesus, oodles, oodles, including some who claimed, you know, after the execution of their master that he was resurrected. Mm, um, yeah. And that came after Jesus, by the way. That was like a, a motif that got picked up on, including, you know, Nero, but we may get to that later. <laughs> and he goes on, you'll, you'll hear of wars, uh, things will happen, but the end is yet to come. Nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom, uh, famines and earthquakes, both of which happen in the pro- proximate time and location to this discussion. Beginning of birth pangs. So all the stuff he's talking about, we often read this and we just only assume this applies to our future. And I'm not saying that typologically this isn't useful to us as we look to the future. But he is saying these are the things that are the birth pangs of the end of Jerusalem as we know it. So verse 9 picking up, and then he says, what also will happen is that you'll be handed over and persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by the nations. Many will turn away from the faith, betray each other. There will be an increase of wickedness. wickedness. The love of of most will grow cold. Uh, The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and the end, and then the end will come. So he's saying that there will be persecutions of the disciples of Christ, of God's people um, in, in these final days leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. All of this happens. This and then the end will come verse, uh, verse 14 of 24. It is often... I always feel tender talking about this because I really love the people that interpret it the way that I think is incorrect. But a lot of people have this idea that the kingdom, the kingdom being preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, that the fulfillment of that so that the end will come, meaning the return of Christ, which is not what we're saying this passage means, will be triggered, <clears throat> will be triggered by uh, the translation of the Bible into every existing language. So there, there's a book called Then the End Will Come, and I think there's probably a lot of good encouragement there that, that really encapsulates this view. And the idea is, and like many, many translator, uh, biblical translators out there in the world now, missionaries and whole nonprofits are devoted to this effort, and I bless them, I'm not making fun of them, and I think that God is using the work they do to bring the gospel. So I'm not, uh, I don't want to do anything to t- sort of take away that energy of the work that people are doing. Um, on the other hand, I think that we simply need to let this text be what it is. So the idea that if we translate, again, the Bible into every existing language, and if we get, if we get you know, a preaching of the gospel to that last tribe in that last place, then boom, that will trigger the return of Christ. That is not what this passage is talking about, I believe. I could be wrong about all of this, by the way. But on the other hand, this is something that I'm increasingly confident about as time goes on. So... Um, Open-handed, but also confident in, in how we're talking about this. Anything to add to this so far? Well, you, you haven't said what you actually think yet, uh, which I actually agree with. So I want you to say, uh, the whole world, what is that? Yes. So this, I was going to save that thought for a little bit further in this, in, in this text, but let's talk about it. Um, the whole world is uh, some of the phrasing of what the whole world looks like in this text is common phrasing in the surrounding culture. And it was really the known world, and specifically the territory of Rome, the whole Mediterranean region, 
and all these nations that kind of symbolized the whole world. So we can see the gospel. So, you know, someone listening to this conversation might say, well, um, well, you're saying, Anthony, that uh, Jesus is talking about things that happened prior to the fall of, of Jerusalem. If that's the case, I, I, I don't see that the gospel has come out to the whole world, and therefore you're wrong. But we're saying that in this in this text, Jesus isn't using that in the sense of the of like the whole the whole earth, the whole globe, but he is using it in the sense of the world as the word would have been used in that time, which meant the known world and and also very specifically like the whole territory of Rome. Is that clear enough? I think so. I think all, so. I'm just going to add a note here because maybe. Some of our friends are uneasy. Anthony, you are not a preterist. Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, so we are really quickly going to get to uh, preterism is the idea that the entirety of New Testament prophecy was fulfilled in the lifespan of you know, the original apostles. Uh, so we don't think that at all. Um, however, it, it's the... The really good falsehoods are the ones that are built on structures that have high levels of truth in them. And so, um, I just love, you know, preterism kind of happened right away and it gets addressed in the letters. People say that Christ has already come back. Uh, In the 100s, Irenaeus, who some of his writings on... Revelation and the Antichrist are some of my favorite uh, because I love, he goes, listen, what I heard from people who knew John, you imagine being able to say that about any of the biblical texts? And he's very um, already and not yet about it and confident and cautious in a way. I have I have the quote, but my phone I actually have on non-transmitting mode right now because it'll mess up with our audio. <laughs> Debating whether or not to get it, I'm gonna save it for next time. But he says essentially, like you know, people, you know, they they've noticed that this number six 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 applies to Nero, and that is certainly true. But also, we have to remember that in the library of scripture, symbols are used over and over again to situate the human experience in terms of the story of God. So let's not you know, rush to conclusions on this. And I was telling Emily this story. I'm like, I think that Irenaeus is the church father version of an ent. He's <laughs> <laughs> um, like very old, very wise, uh, very strong in his opinions, but also just not hasty. It's good. So this is not preterism. This is not preterism. But, and, however, uh, the, we've talked before when we taught on Pentecost that the ancient kind of map of the totality of the cosmos uh, roughly corresponded to the territory of the Roman Empire. I mean, it was the region around the Mediterranean. And so the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 is kind of North Africa, Southern Europe, and some parts of Mesopotamia, Pentecost, same map. Paul wanted to get to the entire world and so he was insistent on getting to Rome. And also, additionally, therefore, a book that I highly recommend, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, talks about how in 
in the original apostolic era, a lot of people did think that this need right here from Matthew 24 had been met because they said, we have sent Christians throughout the entirety of the world, and now we're living here, so the kingdom is distributed like leaven, so job done. Our job now is to live quiet lives of righteousness, awaiting the return of Christ. Mm. And one of the reasons, if, you're not, if you didn't know this, people are really obsessed with uh, St. Patrick and Celtic Christianity. One of the reasons is that he's kind of one of the only missionaries. After like a 300-year period, there are two, two big missionary-like journeys post-apostolic era. And then um, it's really worth asking why for th- 300 years or so, the church was just not bothered with like, but we have to go fulfill the Great Commission, take the gospel everywhere. They're like, the gospel is everywhere. I mean, here we are, man. Just relax. Take on the nature of Christ. I just, I just don't know how uncomfortable our listeners are right now. Maybe we should cut to why this isn't preterism, but first you should finish your teaching, and then we'll talk about why it's not preterism. Well, I, I just want to echo what you're saying here because it's very important to me. It is common uh, when you start engaging with scholars of these of texts like the Olivet Discourse or the Book of Revelation that a lot of their work to show all of the uh, fulfillment pre-fall of Jerusalem in that surrounding time of these prophetic texts, uh, they I think they over-apply that work. In other words, there's a kind of de-enchantment of the prophetic texts that the church should hold as uh, the hope of the return of Christ. So nothing that we're saying here is trying to take away from the sense of urgency that every single day we should be awaiting and ready for the return of Christ. And I think by the end of this conversation, that that should be clear. So people tend to make one of two mistakes. One, they assume everything is fulfilled, is done back then, and now all we can do is sort of uh, uh, extract abstract principles, moral principles out of these stories, and um, and basically they think it's ignorant to apply anything to our future to, to a return of Christ that the church should be waiting for every day. The other mistake is to ignorantly assume that all of these texts are about us, are about our future, and to not pay attention to what Jesus is saying here very clearly. We want to be good disciples and simply let it be what it is. At risk of being, I don't know, redundant, Tim Mackey, actually, he, had, he has wonderful thoughts on this, in particular uh, in Daniel. And what I love, there, uh, I will look for the episode, friends, but he's having a conversation with John Collins, and he's pointing out how one of the beasts in Daniel's vision very closely resembles Nebuchadnezzar, especially because of the feathers that <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar grows. And John asks, wait, so you're saying that that beast is Nebuchadnezzar? And what, what Tim explains back is, if it wanted to say that, it would say that. But it is actually, it's not submitting the story of God to the Babylonian Empire. It's situating the Babylonian Empire in terms of the story of God. And so it's saying the big thing going on is that there are these trampling beasts. And look, do you see Nebuchadnezzar? That's the role he's playing. Well, the same thing is happening here in the siege of Jerusalem. 
which I'm going to turn into a movie someday because <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, both of them. Rated R. And yeah, the at least during the second siege of Jerusalem, they decided to fight on the Sabbath. That was their big Achilles heel fighting Pompeii. Uh, but if it wanted to say, this is about the siege of Jerusalem, they're fully capable of saying that. But they situate the siege of Jerusalem in terms of the big story of God. So the two are working together. And part of what that means for us is not like, oh, so it was all fulfilled. We go, no, 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 no. Um, it, it does map neatly because Jesus is situating real events in their cosmic context. Nonetheless, there are major takeaways for how we interpret our own time. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this podcast at all. <laughs> That's good. So, in 24, verse 14, when Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, what we're saying is that that happens at the establishment of the church. So, soon after this conversation, the events of Ascension and Pentecost will come, the events of the book of Acts, and uh, the point is that the establishment of the church is the gospel, is the, the good news of the kingdom coming to the whole world. Uh, and, when, and then when Jesus says, and then the end will come, that end at this moment in the conversation is the, end of, is the fall of Jerusalem, AD 70, as it turns out. Moving on to verse 15, he talks about the abomination that causes desolation, prophesied by Daniel, let the reader understand. Uh, he says, when you see that happen, so he's speaking to his 12 disciples and probably many more, all the people that were with them. Is, is, it's not certain that that's the case, but probably the, the, the best reading of who his audience is at this point. He's done engaging with the religious authorities. He's, he's now talking to his people, and he's answering their question, what will happen? Well, how will we know that Jerusalem is about to fall? And he's saying, um, all, everything prior to this conversation is the birth pangs, is, is getting ready for it. And then in 15... The abomination that causes desolation is, is how you know it's about to go down and you need to leave. And, and uh, what that is a reference to is, you know, Matthew tells us, it's a quote from, from Daniel, and it refers to the desecration of the temple by a Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes. The third. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we wouldn't want the listener to think it was the first or the second. Well, I mean, there are three Seleucid kings. Uh, And Jesus basically is telling them, if you see something like what he did in the temple, which was desolated, um, if you see something like that happening in Jerusalem, a pagan desecration of the temple, then it's time to flee the city because the end is near. And so he goes on and he says... Uh, it'll be rough if you're pregnant um, because you, you have to flee the city. Um, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, if you, if, like, you'll remember this conversation, disciples. Flee to the mountains. Get out of the city because the siege of, of Jerusalem is about to commence. So like, drop everything you're doing. Don't go back for your field. Uh, uh, in the field, don't go back to get your cloak. Um, it's going to be terrible if you're pregnant or nursing. Um, pray that your flight doesn't take uh, place in winter or on the Sabbath. The distress will be great, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And then he goes on and says, if those days had not been cut short, the days of, of the uh, persecution of the elect in the city, no one would survive. 
Uh, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And the elect is uh, the early church, the people of God. Um, at the time, at that time, if anyone says, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe it. So this is, this is where, uh, pay attention to this part, listener, because this is not the return of the Messiah. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone says, there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out, or here he, he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. And then uh, a very famous image, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Uh, this, so basically 29 through 35, it gets really interesting. And here is, here is a helpful interpretive frame to make sense of this, especially because we're saying all of this happens prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Um, the verses that we're about to read, all this, all this cosm- uh, cosmic uh, imagery is fulfilled in the establishment of the church. So what this should do for you is give you a much grander cosmic spiritual perception of what the reality of the life of the church is like and what it's about and what happened when Jesus established the church. The events of Jesus' passion, his death, resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, the establishment of the church by the gathering in of the tribes in return from exile, and the sending out of the early missionaries into the known world, the fall of Jerusalem, all of these come as like a meta event and initiate the final age, the age that you and I now live in. So the reason that we often assume all of this cosmic language in 29 through 35 could only apply to our future, the return of Christ, is that we don't understand just how cosmically significant, how spiritually earth-shaking um, all that, that meta-event I just described really is. Thoughts? Shall I proceed? I'm, no, I'm trying to anticipate our friend's questions. Normally, that means we have to kind of slow down and take a breath and say, all right, remember, our, our big assumption is that this present age is the world experienced apart from the reign of God. The age to come is God's government back, Eden again. And one day it will be everywhere in the bodily return of Jesus. But there are so many surprises in this story. It wasn't expected to come through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It wasn't expected to come in part. And then, insofar as the kingdom shows up and is here in part, no one expected to get this apocalyptic sign that of the, dis- the final destruction of the temple and there will not be another one. Mm. It's like the curtain going down on that age. That I didn't want to use the word age. I'm going to say on the story to date, on that moment, part of the story of God. And what, this, what does this allow us to do if we think this way? And we say, wow, a lot of what yeah, you were saying, Jesus, was the cosmic significance of things that were going to happen within about a century is it then lets us take that frame 
and look at our own time and wonder what it would look like to live into it, to live in that reality. Hmm. One of the, and I'll say, because if not, the, the crazy things begin to happen. I told you before we started that as an act of love for our listeners, I've been reading the popular books on the return of Christ, getting hives. God bless you. And including several books by Messianic Jews who do things like apply passages from Isaiah to the 1940s establishment of the nation of Israel. And which is just crazy. <laughs> um, especially when they're obviously about the person of Jesus or obvi- like just all red letters. Wait, the formation of a new nation. Don't you know what a nation is in the story of God? Like, um, no, no. God bless you. But unfortunately, you're not reading the story as a coherent whole, and you're not situating events in terms of a progression of God's design visible in Genesis and then traced through the story that makes sense. So what we do here is read our lives, and let's say it again, in terms of the, the cosmic reality, the big reality that becomes visible in a teaching like this when many events that were about to take place got situated in terms of that big reality. Mm, that's good. I don't know if that actually helped anyone, but I... <laughs> I, I would... Uh, I, I think compared to the true story, it is crazy. I would also be more empathetic and say that it's actually fairly common and, and normal and understandable that people of all ages and, and, and of the many different... Uh, from many different perspectives throughout the history of Christianity appropriate these images in these stories. And a phrase that I mentioned last episode, they attempt to immunitize the eschaton. We attempt to make our thing or the thing that we're excited about the, the, the realization of the age to come. But we are trying as faithfully as possible, and again, we could be wrong about some of these things, uh, to submit to the story that we are given, to live into it as faithful disciples and not to appropriate it, take it over and make it happen in the way that makes sense to our uh, proclivities of idolatry. (laughs) Yes. Let's keep going. (laughs) So 29 through 35, uh, Jesus continues, and he quotes uh, Isaiah in saying that immediately after the the distress of those days, so those days is the days leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. What do we know about the meaning of images like sun and moon and stars and heavenly bodies and all those things shaking and falling? What does that mean? Spiritual beings, spiritual beings, spiritual beings. So spiritual authorities are following the, 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 the structure of the spiritual authority of the cosmos is being shaken up in the establishment of the church. Right, which happens in the work of Christ, and then you see that it's a reality because history begins to change in a big way. Mm. That's how I would put it. It would be, you know, you have Psalm 85, you have Psalm 8, you have these scenes that take place, not Psalm 8, but Psalm 85. It might be 86. i got to fact check myself. Um, But the judgment 
of the gods taking place at the resurrection by the Most High God. Though you are gods, you will die like a mortal. And all authority on heaven and on earth being given to Christ who rises and his enemies are made his footstool. And one of the ways that you know that the cosmos is being shaken up is that some of the most important elements in the spiritual architecture of the world change. Meaning, temple gets destroyed, nations fall, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait. Uh, This is what it feels like to live in a world where the withdrawal of Yahweh from Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel has been reversed. God is now present there, he's not going to let these indirect governors establish, you know, like rule forever. The cosmos has been shaken and it is shaking down to our day. It's good. Verse 30, then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth, though that word is probably more appropriately translated the land, since there is no concept of an earth in any of these writers, pretty much throughout the whole, the whole of the Bible. Right. There's, uh, no. <laughs> there's it's not Eretz since we're here in Greek but yeah it's not Eretz uh, there is there's kind of like the world in terms of a sphere of human activity and then there's a land as a place exactly um, so and then there, then there's actually the ground as in like the underworld mm. um, but this is the land <laughs> <laughs> so then all the peoples of the land will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other how could we possibly think that happened already uh, again in the days leading up to the fall of jerusalem versus to clearly see that applies to our future at the return of christ well the answer is that the church being established on the earth is Jesus coming, and the good news being preached to all the nations is Jesus coming to the world. Uh, one of the things I hope you take away, listener, in this conversation is to really see, this got captured really well in the, in the Karl Barth quote from one of our earlier church episodes, and it's not in my mind, but um, it's not memorized by me, in other words, but you can go back if you're that interested. But this idea that like the church really is the body of Christ on the earth, that the establishment of the church, of the people of God and all the called out ones gathering in his name and preaching the good news to all the nations is Jesus coming to them. It is a cosmically significant thing that deserves prophetic language like this. Right. Well, we're not trying to underrate the bodily return of Jesus. Not at all. We are trying to appropriately weigh the reality of Jesus drawing near through his people. Those are not exactly equivalent, but Jesus drawing near and being revealed by the church is a big deal. Um, The answer of why why would all the people mourn, I believe that Matthew is quoting Zechariah 12.10 here. And Matthew is alluding to Zechariah all throughout this, this latter part of his gospel. It's crazy how many times he does it. But in, in 12.10, Zechariah says, or yeah, recites, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So that's, that, that gives you a sense of how people might react to the revelation of Christ with mourning. The one that, that was pierced. 
So when he gathers his elect from the four winds, this is the four winds just basically means, again, the, the world. And uh, from one end of the heavens to the other, this happens. When the missionaries go out, all the early missionaries, when all the churches are established, this happened. And it continues to happen, for, certainly. Um, and he concludes the first part of his answer with, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. And he, uh, he gave the lesson of the fig tree in chapter 21, by the way. Go back to, to see what that looks like. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. A lot of scholars view this kind of language, this generation will certainly not pass away. They, they, they appropriately read it straightforwardly. Jesus is saying, this generation of people, all of you here before me, the, the living generation of human beings on the earth won't all be dead before all this happens. He's saying the fall of Jerusalem will happen in your lifetimes, and it does. So we, because we, we insist on all the previous passages being about our future in time, um, we think that he means this generation quite loosely and basically just means everyone until he comes back. But uh, all the scholars are correct to say that there was the expectation of these things happening imminently, and they did. And then he gets to the second part of his answer. So at this point in the conversation, you might be really struggling because you might feel like we are trying to take away something very important to you, which is this eschatological draw into the future, this hope of the bodily return of Christ, of the resurrection. And we want to say, no, we are not teaching that. We are heavily invested in very straightforwardly, actually, uh, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the age to come, coming in its fullness, the hope of the return of Christ for his bride. So The bodily to, return of Jesus. The bodily no return uncertain of Jesus terms. and bodily resurrection. We're not uh, progressive, kind of uh, leftist in the, in the scholarly sense of the word, uh, interpreters of the scripture who are trying to, um, again, disenchant it and rob it of all of its mystical uh, application to our life and our future and our hope. Right, because I've read too many books uh, that say scholars try to say that Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem, but that can't be because that takes away the hope of the return of Christ. False. And we're saying, no, it doesn't at all. It's okay for Jesus to be talking about the cosmic significance of the fall of Jerusalem in this section which helps us to understand the nature of our time in the story of God and to live into it, expecting the return of Jesus. It's good. And so, I, I think the main thing I, I would say is, the scriptures emphatically affirm the bodily return of Christ. And that is the Christian eschatological hope the final marriage of heaven and earth. We don't think that this particular section is teaching on that. Rather, it's situating world history in terms of the story of God. Uh, that's okay, because we will, in the course of this podcast, continue to talk about those other parts of hope and being anchored in the fulfillment of the age to come that do, that are some of our lifelines into anticipating Jesus' return. 
Uh, but we are at, we're going to keep going. This is just going to be a slightly longer conversation than normal because you have to give the second part of the question, the second part of the answer. So moving on now to the second part of Jesus' response, which is in response to the second part of their question. And it's a helpful... A helpful. And what was that question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So going back to the beginning of the chapter here, the, the disciples said, when will this happen? As in, when will the fall of Jerusalem happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Aha. Aha. And this, but about language in 36, but about that day, um, Paul, it's, uh, Paul uses language like this elsewhere in the Gospels and just in common usage. And this but about phrasing kind of indicates a change in topic. So he's concluded the thought, and now he's beginning a new thought. Now they're related. There's a reason this chapter is what it is, right? The end of the age prior and the beginning of this age and the, at the end of our age to come and so on. At the beginning of the age to come and the end, end of the age we're in, the reason I'm stumbling over this is that it all kind of folds into each other. So these things are related. They're not completely disparate topics. It flows. But he's changing, uh, nonetheless, topics and going on to the second part. His return and the end of the age. And he says, his whole tone changes here. Prior, he's been giving signs and symbols and saying, watch for this, and when it happens, do this. And he's saying, he's giving very clear instructions. Now he says, but about that day, about the day of my return and the end of the age, uh, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And you'll see throughout the rest of this chapter in 25, which is the conclusion of this discourse, that he doesn't give us the same kind of signs that he gave the disciples warning them of the fall of Jerusalem. He gives us a lot of answers as to what it's like and how we should live, given that at any day his return is imminent, his return could, could occur, and we should live in that tension henceforth until he returns. That's, that's actually, so for those of us who are looking for instruction for how to live in the end times and how to prepare for his return, this is it. And he says, keep watch, be prepared, be faithful, and so on. And uh, so, he, yeah, he says, uh, as it was in the days of Noah when the flood came, um, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, people, prior to the flood, pe people were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and so on, living normally. No one thought anything would happen, but then it happened. And that's how it will, will be when I come. So he's saying, you won't know. You'll be living life normally, and then it will happen, and it will surprise you. When he, when he says two men will be in the field, one taken and one the other left, two women grinding with a handmill, one taken and the, the other left, a fun kind of way to reframe this passage, we almost always, because of our uh, modern American, and, and I'm not sure what else, mythology and interpretation of this image, we picture, you know, two people drive, you know, you're driving on the highway and you get raptured, your body disappears, your clothes are left in the sea and your car crashes and so on. Actually, probably the most the most accurate way of interpreting these two verses, especially in the context of the flood, is that you don't want to be the one taken. You want to be the one left, right? Um, not, not because it's not really about a rapture. It's about uh, the how the whole world will swept change. away. You'll be swept away by what's coming because it. The, uh, this isn't the only time that the return of Christ is described like a flood. Yeah, where else? Well, Isaiah. Ah. Uh, and the knowledge of God will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. Uh, interesting. Is I would never connect a this. flood image. I like it. So what do we do? He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. We, 
work so hard to ignore this verse and pretend like we do. And there's a long history of Joker's, you know, making this mistake. He's saying, we don't know. Keep watch. Do keep watch. Be, be on alert for the rest of your life. And it, certainly it will come for you personally when you die, um, in, in a sense. But uh, in terms of the return of Christ in bodily res- you know, return, uh, keep watch because you don't know when it will happen. We've said this in so many episodes, but I, I feel like we cannot say it enough that on these points, this is just a common area where people who may or may not be well-intended do the, <laughs> do the exact opposite the entire way of what Jesus says. So they say, you don't know. They say, we can know. And then he's like, so be a faithful servant. And they say, do the opposite of the Jesus lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Right? It's just like, okay, you don't know, so... Be my apprentice. Uh, eagerly expect me to return, which means taking up your cross and following me. But how it gets translated down through history, unfortunately, in a lot of, including really bad moments, says Jesus is coming back now. And what that means is that all the rules have changed, and we're going to either become a militant army, or we're going to hoard, or we're going to do something just like... Get a bunch of credit cards and go into debt because you won't have to pay it back. Exactly. We're just going to do... Uh, we're going to get ready to shoot our neighbors. Like, we're going to do something that is completely out of keeping with apprenticing to Jesus. Yes. Oh, Lord have mercy. If the owner of the house, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept a watch and would not have left, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? This question is one that we should really take to heart. There's this picture, there's a, uh, one of my favorite words in the New Testament, oikonomos means household order, and it gets translated as stewardship. And we should see, I'm going to like just massively chunk this into a brief comment, we should see the work of our lives as taking the, the, the household goods, i.e. I. spiritual revelation, our actual economic resources, our lives, and everything that God gives us to steward, um, the food uh, in, this, in this verse. And we should see our work as, as, as stewarding what God gives us and distributing it to his people. And we're all given different things to steward and different people to whom we are uh, su- uh, subject to, different people that we are serving. And so what do we do? Because at some point, Jesus will return. At some point, the end of the age will happen. The resurrection will come. Oh, well, you should keep watch. You should uh, be aware of, of, like, of what time period that you're in. And you should be faithful. You should walk in faithfulness, and you should be a wise servant. And you should faithfully distribute what God gives you to those that he tells you to give it to. Now you know how to live in the end times. Voila. <laughs> it would be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will be put in charge of all his possessions. Uh, if that servant's wicked and says, my master's staying away a long time, uh, so he treats those fellow servants poorly and he eats and drinks with drunkards, uh, then he will experience judgment when the master returns. And that's the end of Matthew 25. Uh, Matthew 24. Matthew 25 is then several parables that expands upon this last point. So just to wrap, like just to tell you what we've told you, 
Matthew 24, Jesus answers the question for what it will be like when Jerusalem falls and, uh, and, and also when he comes to the world in the form of the gospel going out to the nations. And then he says, you can't actually know much, at least in this text, this is what he says, you can't know much about my return, but it will happen. It will surprise you. Be ready to be watchful. Be watchful, be faithful, be wise, and be a good servant to the household of God. That's, yes. that's what you do. Walk in the way of Jesus. Wonderful summary. And then he's going to give you three story images to illustrate, beyond illustrate. I mean, uh, second century Galen, famous physician, not a follower of Jesus, deep regard for Christians. He observed... Uh, that Christians took their faith from parables. Mm. Parables, uh, that what really trafficked in the first couple hundred years was a story to an audience that was very able to enter a story, to make their home in it, to notice what was hanging on the walls. So there's so much, but we should take a little time maybe to name features of these parables. I mostly want to talk about the parable of the talents, but you like the parable of the 10 virgins a lot. I mostly um, want to talk about the sheep and the goats, actually, because okay. I feel like for all of these, we can flip, or at least uh, reframe how they're commonly by default interpreted, Let's, but we're going we're gonna to go really fast over these. We're going to shoehorn this into the end of this conversation. This isn't another three-hour episode, so 10 virgins. Uh, go ahead. So their job is to joyfully await. Have you been listening to the podcast of our friends? I know. There's just some redundancy in here because we've got this stuff on the brain. So we talked about this in the last episode. Um, do you remember that? Of course you do. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is a beautiful wedding scene where uh, a marriage that has actually become a social reality is about to become an experienced reality, mm. which is like our position as the church in this age, sealed by the Holy Spirit, bought with the blood of Christ. It is a political, it is an ethical reality that we are married to Christ and we're joyfully awaiting the complete participation in that reality when Jesus returns. So our job is to be alert, uh, is to basically live wisely so that we're ready to rejoice over the return of Christ. Amen. Good okay. summary. The, the, the one thing I'll add to the story is, I, I, as I read it currently, I think we should see ourselves in two positions in this parable. We should see ourselves as part of the church, which is the bride that the bridegroom is returning to. And then we should see ourselves as the virgins who are, who are given to be ready for the return of the bridegroom and to light the way to that celebration. Parable of the bags of gold. Okay, the parable of the bags of gold. Can I tell you the main thing? Because I, I actually, I unpacked the parable from Luke 19 uh, in our last podcast. And this is what I want to point out. Um, That's just so cool. So if no one has told you this before, uh, the scriptures are interpreted history. They're history that has been carefully thought through in terms of its cosmic significance. And then in the construction of these works of art, that history has been arranged to make the meaning of history visible to us. It's for your and my benefit. And so, for example, uh, I love reading Matthew actually and Luke together because of the little things that they switch in the order based on what they're trying to help you see. Mm. And so, 
they, in the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, reverse the second and third temptation, which I have so much to say about why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And here, what is so, I have chills just thinking about it, is that Matthew puts the parable of the bags of gold in a teaching that's about expect that's after the purification of the temple. Luke puts it in a teaching that's right before the purification of the temple. Interesting. Okay. Big deal. All right. So what Luke wants you to notice is that Jesus is Yahweh, the master returning to check on the centuries old commission of his people. And he's about to walk into the temple. He's about to purify the temple, pronounce judgment on it, and then leave. All right? So you, one could say, oh, so it has been fulfilled in a lame way of thinking of fulfillment, meaning done, um, versus it is like now just pouring over the edges of the cup. Well, um, you're saying prophecies can have multiple fulfillments? Wow. <laughs> um, and so... Luke is like, don't forget that this parable is about Jesus being Yahweh coming back to dwell with his people. And then Matthew takes the parable and says, don't forget, you people of God are now in the position that Israel was in as a steward of the mystery for thousands of years. Well, not thousands, like 15. Okay, never mind. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) For a long time. And so, the roles in the story have changed, where God came back to check on, how are you doing with uh, the Torah? How are you doing with the great, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants? And now in the story, it's like, church, you've actually been told to do business assuming that Jesus is coming back. You are a steward of the mystery of God. He is going to return in body to check on you. And so, live the Jesus way. That's so good. I think that dual, that, like looking at Jesus' judgment of the religious authorities and um, their performance and what he says to them, and then realizing that we now, as the stewards of the revelation of the kingdom and whatever level of authority or role of authority we have in his household, uh, should take those things to heart. And our context is extremely helpful. The only thing I'll add to this parable, which I called the parable of the bags of gold because I happen to have the NIV pulled up uncharacteristically, and that's how they call it. It's probably bags of silver. Um, bags of silver. A talent is a, a measure of weight. A measure of weight, almost certainly of silver, uh, but who knows? It doesn't really matter. But uh, even, the, uh, even the servant with the smallest bag of silver here has um, a huge treasure. and. Though our English word talent is actually an, Anglic- Anglic- an Anglicization of the word talenton, which is the word used here, um, talent comes from this word. It's not the word talent. It's the word, uh, it's a picture of a weight of some precious metal. And I think the best interpretation of what this means is our revelation of the kingdom. So we are all given, in varying degrees and qualities, a revelation of the kingdom of God. The household goods that we steward are fundamentally spiritual revelation, also all of our resources in our lives. So the question is, how are we stewarding the revelation of the kingdom such as we have it? And finally, the third parable, 
that Jesus wraps up his discourse with is the sheep and the goats. So just before uh, Blaine and I met here in the room to record, I was getting inspired about this parable and wrote out my thoughts, so I'm simply going to read them quickly. This parable typically gets taught as if the poor who are a socioeconomic class that are not us are the ones Jesus is identifying with and the threat of being condemned as a goat is aimed in our direction. But we only think this because we haven't accepted that for a large portion of the church at least, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, and the sick ones are us, the church. This parable is a story of how those who have become the scum of the earth for the sake of following Jesus will be vindicated in the coming judgment. And the nations will be judged based on how they received the people of the way, Jesus' disciples. This story is not a threat to Christians, but is actually a comfort to those who have been persecuted and cast out and killed, that they will not be forgotten, but will be maintained and restored by Jesus in the coming age. The reason Jesus identifies so much with the poor in this parable is that the church is Jesus in the world. How the world treats the church is how they treat Jesus. So, Have you conformed your imagination to see this spiritual reality in your gathering, that there Jesus Jesus is embodied in your gathering? The challenge of this passage for Christians should not be to feel dread about the prospect of being pronounced a goat in the end. The challenge should be in coming to terms with this picture of the people of God as being the ones who are hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, and sick. The early disciples got this. The martyrs would instantly get this. The faithful Chinese Christians who don't sign on for the idolatrous state-sponsored three-self-patriotic movement Christianity, but meet in underground churches at great risk to their lives, they get this. The Christian convert who gets baptized in a Muslim country and is immediately on a kill list, he or she gets this. Many of us following Jesus faithfully here in our context in the USA may have had opportunity to get a taste of what it's like to be the church that Jesus is identifying with in the parable. We may have sacrificed money and status and relationship for the sake of being disciples, but most of us have had little experience. So what are we to do? In response, a few answers. One, we submit the suffering we do undergo to Jesus and walk with him in it, even thanking God for the opportunity to be closer to Jesus in the midst of it. Uh, See 1 Peter. Easier said than done. Two, we fast. Fasting is our opportunity to voluntarily become the hungry that Jesus describes. Three, we repent and come out of the world and prepare. I think we will have more opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ in the coming days. Will we have such a faithfulness that we will be able to withstand it if that is what is asked of us? And four, we become the ones who feed and give drink, who invite in, who clothe and heal each other. We do this first for the brethren in Christ and then for the outsider so that they too can experience what it's like to be treated as Jesus. End of pre-written thoughts. That was so beautiful. I loved that. I'm not sure. I I have nothing to add, but I'm going to give like a hoorah, which is road to Damascus. You know, mystical chariot Jew Saul is, some scholars think, hi Tom, uh, doing a form of contemplative prayer from the prophetic tradition and he sees Jesus on the throne of God and he's struck blind. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So identifying with his church because he's present in his church that persecuting the church is persecuting Christ. Read that back onto this parable, which is almost always used as a way to like strike fear into the hearts of the followers of Jesus. Uh, Rather than just assume like, that they're living the Jesus way. And St. John of the Cross's line is, 
Um, if you're living the Jesus way, you can just expect the cross to find you. You do not have to actually <laughs> That's cry. good. Um, and at the same time, St. John of the Cross says, if it's not at all, it, 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 that is actually just a sign, a question to evaluate. Yeah. Not to seek suffering, but to seek to apprentice to Jesus and know that you'll end up suffering. It, suffering. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this is like one thing to say, but it, it hurts to live, okay? I was talking with a guy, hi, Matt, um, just recently on life in a house church. And I said, what you're trying to do is the work of Christ become like Jesus. And so it's going to hurt, okay? There are some tactical, strategic things that can uh, facilitate that work getting done, but it's just going to be hard. And I, I just know from my own life trying to do this, it's painful. So take that lens and apply it to who does God call the nations? And then who is he interacting with the nations as uh, he actually begins to do this epic thing, um, which is in your lens, which I am endorsing, um, vindicate his people. Hmm. Um, and also, I mean, just the, of course there are exhortations here, but they're not exhortations that aren't found anywhere else, in particular in the Sermon on the Mount for how you should live. <laughs> uh, and at the same way, it's like an, it becomes an amazing teaching of the ways that the blessing of God can come through the nations to his people. Uh, because you can see a nation seeing the naked and choosing to clothe them. And that being a thing that God actually lo- sees and loves and honors, mm. which is an amazing idea. So to conclude this conversation, I just want to pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do believe that you will return for your bride. We, we, we do believe that you are the son of man who will come in your glory and all the angels will be with you and you will sit on your glorious throne, and you will gather the nations before you. We pray with the church, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. And we pray, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. We are sinners. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. We thank you for the hope of your return, and we thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit now and giving us the power to walk in your way, for reminding us of all of your words, for teaching us how to understand your story, how to understand the scriptures, and how to work all of this out in our lives. We ask that you would make us faithful and wise and watchful stewards who are um, generous and loving to your people and who are good investors of the revelation of the kingdom that you've given us, that our lamps would be full. We ask that you would preserve us and that it would be in your life and in discipleship to you that we are ready when that day comes.